Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 79. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooleman? Uh, good as ever. How about you? Um, I've been doing well. I don't believe that you've been doing as good as ever because you recently tweeted <laughs> that you tried Red Bull Holiday Spice. I I don't know. Uh so Long are, are you really are you really good? Like this is a this is a place of honesty. <laughs> Long time or even short time listeners to this podcast will know that I have one true addiction in my life and it's caffeine. And so I have taken to trying some of the weirder and more exotic flavors and I tried holiday spiced Red Bull. That's not I don't know what I hoped for there. That's not a flavor combination that should work in theory and it does not work in practice. I can attest. Um, don't try Holiday Spice Red Bull, I guess would be the takeaway there. So no, I'm not making the best choices, but then I'm a Leafs fan, so in the larger picture, I've never made good choices. <laughs> Too true. Um, so we should talk, well actually, I, I'm still not over this Holiday Spice thing. What are the Holiday Spices? I don't know, it's like, it's not even specified that it's like pumpkin spice or anything like that. It tastes like... Ass? I, yeah, um, bad. <laughs> I guess it, it tastes like bad. No, no, it's just like it's almost like rusted fruit. Like, like it's can like, fruit can fruit rust? I think? do not believe so. But the good people of Red Bull Incorporated have achieved it. I like it's just like it's like a still kind of like a fruity-ish flavor. It didn't mm-hmm. evoke pumpkin spice for the record, but it's like a fruity thing. Except there's something a little off. A little tangy, a little pungent, a little bit of a, a uh, little bit of a how you doing, and uh, yeah, it's distasteful. I still finished it because <laughs> Daddy needs his fix, but I wouldn't buy it again on purpose. Uh, Good to know. Stick. To, you're gonna stick to regular Red Bull from here, which is definitely much better. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna end up being some sort of medical experiment in 25 years where they're just sort of like, what happens if a man consumes? Way too much Red Bull in his lifetime. I've actually, I've never had a Red Bull before. Oh my lord, Arvind. How has your life been so deprived? No, I will say actually, like, Red Bull is the quintessential example of market capture by getting there first. Mm -hmm. Like, because they were so early. They're not the best tasting of the energy drinks by any means. Um, You know, I will say at the risk of sounding like a bro... Uh, the monster ones taste better. Mm-hmm. They're all, I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing any of these things as a lifestyle choice for anyone or even myself. These are bad for you. Um, they either have a spectacular amount of sugar or they're full of aspartame, which may be good or bad or indifferent for you, or it may put metal in your brain. I don't know. I hear contradicting things about that that I ignore. But, uh, yeah, uh, Red Bull is... It's a dubious lifestyle choice, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Red Bull's also... Okay, so we're getting very far afield of hockey, but <laughs> Red Bull is really good at marketing, right? Like they Oh, dominant at marketing. They do. They also do, like, so many things to market themselves within just, like, extreme sports or, like, you know, kind of adrenaline sports, which, you know, ostensibly have nothing to do with energy drinks, right? But they... It's a marketing exercise. Like, they, they run a Formula One team. Mm-hmm. And, and that Formula One team is very good, and they use that to like push drinks. Basically, it's it's very interesting. They had a big product placement in How I Met Your Mother with uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character, 
um, Barney Stimson, he's drinking Red Bulls in like half the episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. And apparently this is also just something that he does. But they saw their chance and they just <clears throat> took advantage of it. So, yeah, they've been very effective. And as a result, they've been able to expand into new flavors, some of which are bad. And that's how I came to the state that I was in that tragic Thursday. <laughs> All right. So speaking of... Um potentially tragic states the toronto maple leafs <laughs> yay there we go we did win last night uh we did in philly after a, a truly awful shootout um there's some shootouts so it there it was 11 rounds and the leafs scored two goals in that shootout and the Flyers scored one mm-hmm. um and in some shootouts you know goalies are just making great saves the shooters were just really bad here a lot of uh dubious shot selection like misses or right into the bread basket or what have you. The Leafs you. had two people try to do the Kucherov. It didn't work either time. <laughs> and the, Kuch- the Kucherov is you look like total idiot. Yes. Um, yes. If you miss it. So yeah, you look like the biggest goof. But anyways, the Leafs won. And I mean, on this podcast, we tend to look, try and look at like the long term and like, oh, okay, is this a good win? Like, how are they playing? But it was one of those wins where you're just glad the Leafs get the two points. They kind of need it. You don't really want to mm-hmm. fall behind the eight ball too much, right? So even if you can bank some points that, you know, wasn't really your best performance, it still helps. It still helps a lot. And especially with kind of um, the way the team has started, that win was very much appreciated, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you know, the thing is, is that um, it's still a lot more fun to say, like, maybe you didn't deserve to win, but you did than to say you did deserve to win and you lost. Um, That is obvious, but it's just sort of nice to have it go our way for once because in addition to not always being the greatest throughout a lot of this early season, I feel like the Leafs have also been unlucky. Like, they've lost several games that they could have won. I think this was their first win that went to extra time. I think they had three games prior to now when they lost them all. Um, no, we, we beat Boston in OT. Oh, yes. No, we did beat Boston in OT. I stand corrected. But uh, I, I'm thinking of, you know, like the Washington and Columbus and all that sort of stuff. It felt like sometimes we lost a few of those coin flips, so we were due to win one. A shootout is a coin flip. Pretty much always. Pretty much no matter who's in it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the game itself was not great. Um, we, we've talked kind of at length about the least kind of schedule difficulties to start the year where we were we had three or four games where we were on the second half of a back-to-back against a rested opponent with travel in between the two legs of the Mm back-to-back well the Leafs were on the other side of that Philly would had a a kind of brutal travel schedule and by all counts this could have been a a schedule loss for them and in the early going of the game it seemed like that would be the case but the Leafs were just kind of dummying the Flyers in the first period Mm -hmm. but after a power play for the Flyers and a rather fluky power play goal the tide just completely shifted, right? And throughout the rest of the game, the Leafs really didn't actually generate a whole lot, um, barring some moments of, of brilliance from Mitch Marner's goal, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, it, it was a bit, frankly, disconcerting to see how he sort of deflated. It was a stupid goal, like just an unfortunate series of bounces on the penalty kill. Uh, but it, we went from really dominating to really struggling, taking a lot of penalties, which has been a really worrying problem throughout the early going this year. And kind of looking like the second best team on the ice, when you would think that if fatigue is playing more of an issue, it would catch up with the Flyers more as you went. 
but that doesn't seem to have been really how it went. Um, yeah, it, it's you know. been a little troubling. And I mean, you, you brought up the point that uh, prior to the podcast when we, were, when we were just chatting, that for the past few weeks, the Leafs top line numbers really haven't been good. They got off to a very nice start at uh, 5v5 in terms of carrying, playing, Corsi, and obviously expected goals in the first parts of the season were iffy. So we'll, we'll stick to Corsi for now. But it slowly come down a little bit, and, and that's worrisome. Yeah, th- they've looked like a really below-average team the last few weeks, numbers-wise. I mean, I think that there's an uncomfortable question there about, like, without John Tavares, how good a team are we really? And we should be better than this, I think, but we obviously miss him immensely. You know, mm-hmm. like, we're, we're a much inferior team without him. And I think that's certainly been borne out. I, even though Mitch Marner has been putting up the numbers, he doesn't look as great on a consistent basis without Tavares. Like, with Tavares, I think it's a great line. With Mitch Marner, you know, lacking Tavares, he's a guy who can break out. And he did last night. And, you know, I don't discount that level of talent. And he's still getting the points. It's just like... There are long stretches where you're like, this guy doesn't look like an $11 million player. And and part of that is also, you know, he he's not having the season where 12% of his shots go in anymore. Or 12% of his line shots go in anymore, right? And when every puck is ending in the opponent's net, that makes everyone look, look good. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't doubt that Marner will go back. To, like, I don't doubt that Marner is the player we think he is. He He's a very, very good player. He's not worth his deal, but we've covered that. He's still a tremendous player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, missing Tavares is quite obviously hurt. Missing Hyman, I think, has had an underrated impact as someone who typically grades out as quite a strong possession player. Um, and then we didn't have Jake Muzzin yesterday, which, which hurt. But at the same time, you know, other teams deal with injuries as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not fair to just say oh you know it's injuries you know we can dismiss these entirely at the same time you know those first x number of games did happen we're only 15 games in if you're throwing away data at the start of the season like there's no real reason to do that as well right Mm -hmm. i I talk about this a lot but like the order in which events occur really shape our narratives even if there's even if it's plausible that kind of the underlying process hasn't really changed we mm-hmm. will kind of retrofit narratives to make it so. And that's kind of exactly what we're doing now, where we're saying uh, the, the numbers have trended down a little bit. That's that's a little scary. And I think it's fair to be to raise it as a, as a concern. I, I don't think it's gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, this changes my opinion about the coaching job that Mike Babcock is doing or, or whatever. But it is something to monitor um, going forward, right? Because, because right now the Leafs are kind of a one-line offensive team. And when that one-line isn't really going as it as was the case last night they don't look particularly damaging no which is worrisome given that you know we're a team that's invested so heavily in its forwards and even again missing one of the very expensive ones it's glaring you know we we do look worse i will say you know i haven't revised my opinion of like babcock i think that you know it's wait and see if these results persist with Tavares back to some extent with like decent health and we look like a genuinely bad team in a couple months and it's been sustained over a longer period, 
that is a problem. You yeah. know, like I think that, yeah, that does reflect badly. And I will say the goaltending still has not really been there. Frederick Anderson had uh, a kind of dubious goal against last night uh, where he just kind of got cheating and got beat from a bad angle. He was otherwise really good. So, you know, you can kind of say that that comes and goes there. But we haven't had Sterling goaltending, which this team really needs <laughs> to be really good. So that's a big part of it. But, you know, the shots, the expected goals, all those things that we talk about in terms of, like, how was the play being controlled? That has fallen off. And that is worrisome. I don't think that that's illusory. They, they don't look the way that we want them to. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, on the topic of the, the Leafs' top line, the Matthews, Janssen, Nylander trio, when they go up against an elite group, and which hasn't happened that many times this year, you want to see them perform well. And I think for the most part, they got kind of shut down last night. It's not helped by the fact that they were primarily matched up against Sean Couturier, who might be the best even strength player in the world. And I, I mean that with no exaggeration. He is a phenom. He's so, so good at controlling play at five on five. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's like, I mean, the, the obvious kind of answer everyone always points to about the best kind of two-way players in the, in the world. It's Patrice Bergeron, but Couturier has been at that level for the past three, four years, mm-hmm. right? He's been just great. So, you know, it, it's understandable. You're up against tough competition, tough forward competition there. And obviously the numbers won't necessarily be spectacular, but you want to see that Matthews need to underline do well against those top guys because you're going to have to face top guys en route to a cup. Right, yeah. you can't you can't beat up on Detroit for four rounds. Yeah, <laughs> you don't get Detroit for any rounds in the playoffs. Exactly. Um, you, you know, and, and that is kind of. I, I think that when you raise objections to uh, to Matthews or to his play, you'll see a lot of people kind of say, "Oh, like all he's doing is like dominating in goals," and it's like that's true. He's playing very well at specific things, but he doesn't look like and elite superstar all around center and right. you can say maybe that that's just too much to ask well yeah and i mean i was, I was gonna know. say and saying that like you know even with some relatively mediocre games in the past couple and actually i think their game against washington was was better than the the top line numbers would say mm-hmm. um i think they they played well they created a lot of chances that I, I think were undervalued by expected goals because they had really great pre uh pre-shot movement mm-hmm. um but like all told, they still have a Corsi of 58% and expected goals of 59% per natural stat trick. Like, the, the top-line numbers are still really good. We're, we are picking nits here. And, you know, a lot of these issues go away if you get the Tavares-Marner line clicking because then if Matthews Nylander have a so-so game, you have another first line that's there to back them up who probably won't have a so-so game. Yeah, and so, you know, the truth is I should kind of temper that criticism by saying... If Tavares and Marner are going the way that we know that they can, as you're saying, you can certainly win with the Matthews line being a little iffy defensively, but driving play and putting up goals, that'll be more than enough. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, we really are, we're grading Matthews on a standard of, is he competitive for like a top five center in the world? Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, not. 
that's yeah, the right I don't think. thing. That's the right curve to grade him on. He's getting paid. He's the second highest paid player in the league, isn't he? Uh, Panarin just went past him, so now he's third. I now he's third. Yeah. So, but, yeah, you you yeah. you were going to be compared to those guys, right? And that's the standard he has set for himself. And the reality is there are different standards for different players. And we'll get into this when we talk about William Nylander and what happened in Philadelphia uh, yeah. with respect to his ice time. Um, but, yeah, there, there are different standards for different players, and that's life. There's different standards for different people, mm-hmm. right? And you can say that's unfairness, but it's really it, – it's a function of – expectations and the tools that players have and what you are asking of players and you know when you're a top heavy team you are saying to your top guys you are the ones who need to drag us to success right it's not good enough to be good enough you have to be one of the best in the world yeah i think you know i think he knows that i think on some level he's embraced that i mean he has a tattoo of a gigantic lion on his bicep i don't think that that's (laughs) an indication of humility or a a yeah, sense that his status is less than the very best. Yeah, and I, I don't doubt for any of the top, the Leafs' top four guys, uh, Nylander, Matthews, uh, Marner, and Tavares, I don't doubt the work ethic for any one of them. I don't doubt that they want to be great. I don't doubt that they're, they're going to put in the work to be as good as possible. Um, it's just, you know, it, you're asking a very hard thing. You're asking, you know, be the one of the five best people in the world at what you do. Right, like mm-hmm. Austin Matthews already is better at his job than I will be at mine for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I mean that's just the reality. But this is the thing: is you know, this is your conversation that you have entered into, that you put yourself in, where you're saying, "Am I on a level where people can talk about me in the same breath as Connor McDavid?" And it's not dumb. And he's had moments where you could say that about him, and there are precious few players in this league of whom that is true at least in terms of offensive ability. And so that's the bar now is, is, you know, you have to be that good. You have to be able to take a tough competition and stand up to Patrice Bergeron and play decently. Well, I'm not saying be unaffected. I'm not saying you go 60% Corsi against the Bergeron line. That's really bloody tough to do for, I think any human. I'm just saying at that very elevated level, sometimes I've seen some things to be disappointed with in his play this season. On the whole, he's still excellent, and he's having an excellent year, um, hockey-wise. It's just, you know, there there is a bit of that missing piece, and it is certainly colored in my perception by the fact that the team as a whole doesn't look that great. And so right. the instinct is still to say, okay, well, where's your leadership group, even when the leadership group is doing okay, and issues are elsewhere so yeah and, and i mean the, the reality is a, a huge portion of our problems is well we're playing morgan variety and cody cc against our tough our, our, against essentially top competition and yeah. <laughs> that, that's not working out i mean it's working out about as well as morgan Riley and ron hainsey did or morgan Riley and nikita zaitsev did right it's meet the new guy same as the old guy yeah it, it actually it's felt worse again probably because they're on ice safe percentage is not very good yeah and, I, you know but i Riley find myself himself so I find myself yelling at CC a lot when I watch him play. And I think, on one hand, I think I'm being unfair. I think, you know, probably things happen to him that happen to every other player that, you know, a puck hops over a stick in, in a promising mm-hmm. offensive position. That's one of those things that just kind of happens, right? It's, it's hard to control, really. But I, 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 for whatever reason, actually, well, the reason is because I, I think he's a terrible player. But <laughs> I, I, have, I have no kind of slack 
for CC the way I do when it's someone else, right? And I guess that's a failing on my part, but it it's hard not to be frustrated when you watch CC. And, you know, I, I roll my eyes at the people who are like, oh, well, try Justin Hall there. Or, you know, so try, you know, insert guy who has never played more than 20 minutes in the in an NHL game uh, mm. as the top pairing right to you. But it's like, try something. <laughs> but love yeah. God, try something. Um, and I, I hope like, when... I'm seriously at the point where I'm like, yes, try Justin Hall. And yeah, I don't I... think it's going to work. But like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, like, <laughs> it's it's Cody Cece. It's not like we're, we're running a huge risk of, uh, you know, breaking up something that's successful. I just, you know, if it doesn't work, boo-hoo, you have a different thing that doesn't work. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and I, I hope when when Dermot has had a few, maybe a few more games to acclimatize uh, after his injury, then yeah, I hope we see him up there. But you know, th- we talked about this last week. But this is this is what I think is the most reasonable criticism of Babcock. It's like just please try something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I, I, I know like, we're we're not saying turf CC from the lineup entirely. Yes, I mean, we can't really so you can yeah. still put him out there on the penalty kill and do whatever you think you got to do with him it's just like uh, it does feel like we've got a bit of a lead balloon tied to morgan riley who warts and all is our best offensive defenseman and maybe the best all around i mean he's pretty iffy defensively but whatever um so yeah i think we're certainly at the point of like at least try something and at least fail differently but that's me. Yeah, pretty much. It, it, it's it, it, it's undeniably very frustrating to see kind of the same thing repeatedly happen, right? So mm-hmm. I, I I do get the frustration that a lot of fans have with, with Riley CC. Um, and, I mean, last night, it's hard to criticize this in, in the context of last night because, you know, the other option is Barry Marinson. So yeah. it's, it's so it's like you have Morgan Riley but worse and Martin Marinson on that pair yeah. effectively. So yeah, that's a bit iffy. So very very iffy. Know. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's not it's not tremendously uh, pleasant um, at this point. But I mean, this is the roster that the Leafs have. They they're desperately they desperately need one more good defenseman right like mm-hmm. I, you, know, you know what how how nice would jake gardner look on this roster now oh god i you know i have to say like i've been very fond of kyle dubas and all that sort of stuff and i still generally think he's done a good job but the cc thing is painful at the least because we really could even use that extra 200 grand. You know, like, I'm still not sure we had any choice but to kind of keep him. If he was smart, he would have taken his qualifying offer. And I'm not sure I really buy that kind of ruthless attitude where you just say we're just going to bury him and drive him out of town, basically. I think that that does have consequences in terms of how you run your team. But, like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> just... I, I recognize it that is Dubas had... A difficult thing to manage there because you know this entire time yeah. where the CC thing was was playing out, he has to balance. Okay, well, what what's going to happen with Marner? Um, but mm. 
it's hard to argue that the net result has been positive for the Leafs. Right? And, and now yeah. they're, they're overpaying Martin Rancisi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good work, everybody. Uh, um, yeah, so it's it's a frustrating state of affairs. I do, like, I miss Jake. And, you know, he seems happy in Carolina now. And God bless him, he certainly deserves it. Yeah. And, you know, anyway. So, we, but we've got what we've got. You know, we have a limited number of options. And... At some point, we're going to have to ask some some tough questions about, like, where are we going with this top pairing? And are we ever going to try anything else? And while I don't think Mike Babcock is a total stick in the mud, he has been pretty obstinate with certain pairings with Raleigh that didn't really seem to work. So that'll be something to watch going forward. And I have to admit that I'm a little worried that one is not going to change. Yeah, and I think I think that's a very justified, a very justified worry at this point, right? It's we've seen this movie before. Yeah, now, now saying that, we're facing the Kings on Tuesday, I believe, at home, I believe, and you would think that okay, against a weak Kings team, that this is a game where they can hopefully kind of buck the the poor fancy stats trend the poor you know carrying play trend that's been dogging although the kings have had decent fancy stats they do they do they they have they have a pretty good they actually rank ahead of the leafs or sorry right behind the leafs in in score adjusted coursey so essentially the exact same uh as them their expected goals are are good so they might not be as um crappy as their point totals indicate but you look at the players on that roster and it's it's quite bereft of high-end talent at this point that is a game that the Mm. Leafs should certainly win especially because John Tavares is likely going to make his return there yeah and we don't know if Muzzin will or not but the Muzzin thing is weird the Muzzin thing it has been a bit weird initially Babcock said it was like a Charlie horse thing which which is that that should not have any long-term consequences at all so I don't think that's yeah like it's surprising that he missed a game if it was just a Charlie horse. And then he missed the game for what is denoted as personal reasons, but he was also wearing a red no-contact sweater at the previous practice. So, I mean, look, we could take... Yeah. You could take all of this at face value. You know, maybe, there, maybe you know, his kid got slightly sick or something and he wanted to be with his family. Totally understandable. That's, you know, certainly we're not going to ever dog a player for missing a game for personal reasons. Like, that's just... No, that, I mean, sh- you never know and you should never, like... Exactly. We should never assume. I'll just say that it is, as you said, it's a bit odd to practice in a no-contact jersey for personal reasons, you know? Like, that sounds like an injury to me. And yeah. So I, and, I, and then it begs the question. I kind of wonder, but who knows? If they're... Yeah. So, if you're taking this at face value, like, the, the party story, effectively, is that, okay, he was in a non-contact jersey to maintain, just to you know, make sure it doesn't re-aggravate anything, and then maybe something else personal popped up, but that was separate necessitated he missed the the Saturday game. And that is plausible. Mm. Um it's just a little yeah. weird. We we're typically not this in the dark about Leafs injuries, but Marley's injuries we are and it's a source of much much frustration for our Marley's writers at PPP where they can't get a straight answer for like any player who is uh hurt for the Marley's. I think the current one is Mason Marchment. Like no one's seen him in like a month. No one knows how yeah, what went just wrong disappear. with him. Yeah, the Marlies is like they're just like well he hasn't been there in a month you know like that's crazy yeah it's, <laughs> the Leafs are not uh, 
the most forthcoming, or at least the Marlies, anyways, are not the most forthcoming um, professional sports team. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, anyway. So, I mean, we were going to talk about the Nylander thing, because that's... Uh, Appears to be today's favorite Twitter topic. Yeah. So, so I guess we should sort of set the table. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to do it or, or should I? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I don't mind. So at, uh, the Leafs came out of the second intermission tied and rather demoralizingly, they gave up a goal very quickly. And I have to say, William Nylander did not do himself any favors with his play on this goal. He kind of had this really half-assed sort of forecheck attempt, and he got walked, basically. Um, the Flyers player zoomed past him. There was a resulting net front scramble, and it wound up in the back of our net. It was not good defensive play any way you slice it. I don't think anyone's really defending it on its own merits. It was no. not a good play. And, I mean, funnily enough, uh, earlier in that same sequence, Dean Ender had a, had a good back check um, that... Mm-hmm. momentarily prevented a scoring chance due to some bad luck and the puck kind of bouncing the wrong way. The Flyers got a scoring chance out of it anyways, but that wasn't Nylander's fault. But then he he did a flyby, essentially, on, on Sandheim. Mm-hmm. And it that's a mistake that is one of just pure laziness, right? And it is immensely frustrating. So it, it's become a tired trope to repeat that, to repeat why Nylander is frustrating to a lot of fans. But that's why. Right, a lot of what he does is does well is not that noticeable unless it shows up on a score sheet, which oftentimes it doesn't. And what he did poorly there was incredibly obvious, and it immediately burned the Leafs in the most consequential way possible. Yeah, uh, it's worth probably expressing what exactly what the issue is here. If you do like a flyby, like he's doing, kind of combined with a poke check, what you're hoping is I'm going to knock the puck loose and I'll be behind him with the puck. And then I can be off to the races. It's hoping for offense. But you're in your own defense, your own zone. You're playing defense, nominally. So what you should be doing is trying to get uh, on the body. And, you know, I think people sometimes hand wave away physicality and stuff like that. And they think, you know, it's all macho posturing and all this sort of nonsense. But that's just like basic defense. Is to obstruct the guy who's carrying the puck legally with your body so that he doesn't get momentum and that he doesn't go in uh, with a ton of space, which is what happened. Essentially, you've got to be making the more conservative play there, and that is a spot where you should be thinking conservatively. If you miss a flyby, if you miss a flyby, you've essentially mm -hmm. put your team shorthanded for the next five or six seconds. Yeah, and and Newlander kind of whirled back around, and then he wound up drifting into the high slot, and I don't, I don't think he, like, gave up on the play or anything, but he didn't seem to recover to a point where he really knew what he was supposed to do now. Um, at least he was not effective at any subsequent point, you know? Like, this happened, and then he was kind of like, wait, what the hell? And then the puck was in the back of the net a few seconds later. Um, it's frustrating. It would frustrate me as a coach. I didn't like it as a fan. I don't think that was a great play, and... I think we've both been emphatic about how much we like William Nylander as a player. Yes. and but and I also think that this is a fair thing to criticize him for. That was a bad play. Yes, and you know? I mean, independent... So we actually didn't talk about this uh, last night, but um, I tweet... Some people were kind of... We should actually, sorry, lay out what happened to Nylander after this. 
um, set the table, but he missed, I believe, his next shift or his next two shifts. I think Dimitro Timoshov came up instead. And then mm-hmm. Nylander just rejoined that line as usual, effectively. Right. Yeah, uh, what he's described as being benched, like people, like, that makes it kind of sound like he was, like, staple to the bench. Black bagged and thrown into the river. Yeah, like he, he, like he stopped playing, I think is what people envision. And I'm not saying that anyone's trying to be deceptive there, but we should be precise. He got cycled off his line a little bit. He kept playing. He, f- he finished with nearly 20 minutes on the night. That includes overtime, granted. But, like, that's not someone who's not being played. He was, I think, the third most played forward on the team still. And towards the end, I think um, Kapanen came up for him on that uh, Matthews line. And, I mean, as much as you could say maybe this is about punishing Nienander, I think a part of that is also rewarding Kapanen, who had a brilliant game. Yeah, Kapanen... And it's just worth noting in his side, he's really been flying lately. Like, yes. he clearly is just more suited, playing right side, playing third line, um, you know, kind of doing his captain game where he just zooms around all the time. But yeah, so I, I, I got to tell you, I don't think that this was disproportionate. I don't think that this was unjustifiable, but it goes into maybe the secondary thing that people say, okay, if it's about accountability... Why isn't X player accountable? Why isn't Austin Matthews equally accountable? Why isn't Cody Cece accountable is one thing that I saw. And so I'd probably start by saying, I don't think Cody Cece is ever not really trying that I've noticed. He does his best. Right. It's not very good because he's not a very good player. But if you like kind of punish him for just being Cody Cece... I don't know that he's going to improve very much at that at this point, you know? He's not making mistakes like Nylander make, which are mistakes of deliberation. Yes, of so just the, the, way I would, choice. the way I would put it, it is Nylander makes mistakes of omission as opposed to errors of commission, right? He, it's not like he is mm. just getting beat. He's making a particular choice that is just unequivocally lazy, right? And... That is not a good play. It's it's not. And again, we say this as people who are huge fans of Dean Andrew. I think he's been the least second best player this year. He's been really good. He's a very good player. But, he, you know, I think it doesn't do anyone a, a, a service to not point out that was a bad play. It was a really bad play. And it's a bad play in a way that coaches despise. In that it was just fundamentally lazy. Right? So I, I mm-hmm. when I, I tweeted... Uh, in response to, to some people who were saying, you know, this is kind of a, a joke. Why is Nienander always the one being held accountable? And I, I said, you know, I don't really have a problem with this in this case. Would I have done it if I was the coach? I don't know. Probably not. But I don't I don't think it's a big deal because, one, he was taken off his line for two to three shifts. He was not being sent to eastern Russia to live the, re- the rest of his days in a coal mine. You know, like, yeah. he'll yeah, live. I said, yeah. I saw, like, oh, I saw, a tw- there's actually a tweet that just came up on this topic while I was looking for other tweets on this topic, but it said, like, we're crucifying William Nylander. Wow! Okay, let's maybe dial that down about six notches. No one is crucifying him. him onto another line. Yeah, he's alive. He's fine. He's still on the top line. And by the way, it's probably worth noting, for someone that Mike Babcock supposedly hates, guess who has more even-strength ice time this season between Nylander and Marner? I'll give you a hint. It's not Marner. And so, I have to tell you, this idea that Babcock is just straight up out to get him and hates him is weird to me. I do think 
that Babcock has decided that sometimes Nylander needs a kick in the ass. Yeah. And this was one such occasion. I'm not really prepared to say that he was wrong about that. I do also remember that when Nylander was having one of the worst stretches of his professional career, coming back from his contract dispute, he was clearly struggling to get back up to game speed. The puck was not going in for him at all, as opposed to how it does now, which is just only sometimes. Um, Mike Babcock said, I just showed him tape of him winning battles. I said, I don't talk to him about production. I don't worry about that. I just showed him playing him, playing as the player that he can be and that I know he can be. I don't think that that sounds like a guy who really has it in for Nylander. I mean, yes, he's been demanding. He's always asked for, for more out of him and he's not been by any means relentlessly positive about him, but he hasn't been all negative either. And I do think you actually said last week, you know, coaches can lie in public, but they don't lie about ice time. The fact that Nylander is being played like he is, is generally a sign of support and trust. And this was one discrete incident that I think was pretty justifiable. Yeah. It, That's it's, where I'm coming from on that. Yeah. And it's not a question of like, oh, Nylander deserved to be punished for that. It's, it's just, I don't think it's a big deal. Right? Like, mm-hmm. it, at the end of the day, he, he made a mistake. He got punished for it in a pretty minor way. He got taken off his line for a portion of a period. And I think everyone is going to move on from this. And I don't think this is an actual issue in any real way. Right? Um, and when people ask for, like, accountability with respect to other players on the team, frankly, I think Nienander, among Leafs players, makes this specific type of error most often. I don't think he's the Leafs' worst defensive player, but I think he is probably the most deliberate about making choices to cheat for offense. And that's a specific type of mistake that coaches don't like. And in this case, it ended up in the mm-hmm. back of the Leafs' net, which I'm sure didn't help matters. If Sanheim just misses a shot, then, I don't know, this probably doesn't happen, right? So there is a bit of kind of outcome bias in that. Um, but it, it, to me, it's just not a particularly large issue. I don't think oh this is a master play by babcock or anything it's not i don't think it you know some genius 400 iq move to do this as well and it'll teach nylander a lesson i think nylander's gonna mostly be the same guy uh, that he always is he's going to make great plays 85 percent of the time and 50 percent of the time he's gonna make you want to tear your hair out um yeah but it's just it's just not a tremendously large issue to me right he made a mistake he got punished we'll move on He's a great player. Yeah. Babcock treats him like a great player. And yeah, that's it. it these mistakes, this type of mistake is, is just very frustrating to see as a fan, right? So I, I I don't, I don't see why this is such an issue. And I, I feel like there's kind of an anti-authority element to it as well. And you can make a reasoned yeah. argument that like maybe negative reinforcement doesn't work, period. Neither Fulman nor I are psychologists um, who have studied this. There are studies that show that, you know, negative reinforcement doesn't generally work, but that's a generalization. There, I'm sure there are people for which negative reinforcement does work, and maybe Nylander is one of those people. And again, this fits in with the broader template of how Babcock has, has treated him, which is to say that he gives him a kick in the pants when he feels he needs it. And I don't mm-hmm. think that behavior from Babcock's end has been malicious in any way, or it's been, you know... a one where he genuinely doesn't like Nylander or wants to kick him, put him when he uh, kick him down, 
or and make him feel worse. As you said, there's been times where he has lifted Nylander up when a lot of other people were trying to kick him down. Mm-hmm. It's just the way Babcock has chosen to deal with this. And from the outside, I, I just struggle to have the confidence to say that was unequivocally a mistake and Babcock should feel bad for it. And it's also worth reminding ourselves, Babcock studied psychology. He's not an, an uneducated rube who is going, er, hurt her sw- Swedish guy, sucks, I hate him, right? Like, Babcock's probably three favorite players in his career were Datsuk, Zetterberg, and Lidstrom. Yeah, I think he's okay with Swedes and other Europeans. Yeah, yeah. right? Well, so it, I mean, it, let's be honest. There's a subtext here where I think people who are particularly into fancy stats who are often younger, not always, but like often younger fans, often fans who are more into the numbers side of the game, uh, there is a tendency to be a little less pro-authority and more resistant to it. They identify more maybe with the young person on the way up than with the old person who's telling them to smarten up. And I think also there has been a lot of criticism of Nylander from other quarters that is unfair. That's and so ridiculously unfair. A, yeah, extremely. And I think, you know, we've tried to call it out when we've seen it too. Um, th- there is a cultural thing going on there where people feel that they need to kind of defend him because it's part of their ongoing argument with the people who are kind of the mad radio call-in sort of segment of the fan base who are just angry and who want to trade him for a bag of pucks because he's not gritty enough or anything like that. And because this particular screw-up on Nylander's part plays into that feeling that is used as a basis for those unfair arguments, I think people feel a need to react to it when you can really just kind of say, yeah, it wasn't a great play by him. Yeah, there were some trivial consequences. His ice time was still high. It has been all year. It probably will continue to be. And yeah, we move on. So I I, I do think that um, as card-carrying members of the Nylander fan club, we still think maybe we can chill out a little bit on this one. Yeah, Um. just two kind of final points. One, if, if this extends to, say, taking him off the Matthews line against LA or into the future, then I will agree that the punishment is, is too is too much. Like At that point, you're hurting your team, and I, I don't mm. really see the reward. Um, number two, like with Matthews, uh, Niedender, by virtue of his talent, by virtue of his position on the team, by virtue of his salary, he gets held to a higher standard, and that is fair. Mm-hmm. You, he's expected to be one of the best players on the team, right? If... I don't know. Pick a name. Uh, Trevor Moore does that. You know, first off, it would be quite uncharacteristic for Moore. But if Trevor Moore does that, you're paying the guy seven hundred thousand, right? Like, yes, that's a that's a shitty thing. Trevor Moore does that like three times. He's out of the league. He's done. Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) the consequences are actually a lot more severe once they become applied. Yeah. Like the Um, the grinders, you almost don't have to teach them that lesson because. They're gr- they know where they stand on the team. They know that if they do that, they are screwed. Nylander is... They didn't too- get to this level if they did that. Yes. Basically. They don't have enough talent to survive playing yeah. that way. Nylander, and I'm not saying this is in like a nefarious way, but like he knows that on balance of probabilities, the plays he makes are good for the team, right? And he knows that regardless of a, a lazy choice, if it doesn't work out, well, that sucks, but, you know... That's that's part of the package. 
that doesn't mean it's still the right choice, right? He, he knows he has enough kind of slack to maintain his standing, maintain um, his, his spot on the team, maintain his job, right? So, you know, mm. to, to some extent, I don't see a problem with looking at that kind of more thoroughly and saying, okay, look, William, that's not okay. Don't do that. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the two points I wanted to raise. I don't think I express that as eloquently as I want, but I think I think the main idea is is clear. Like different standards for different players are a thing, and the key thing about this Nylander issue is it was an error of laziness, not an error of not being a good enough hockey player. Mm-hmm. And that's a little different. I, uh, someone actually, just as one parting point, also compared it to Mitch Marner taking a penalty in a key situation um, against Washington. And I think that that's true. Like, you can also say, look, we got to tell the player to wake up a little bit. I think one, with a penalty, there's like an immediate direct personal consequence. You're sitting in the box watching as the game-winning goal goes in. I'm sure that that's, <laughs> that's something that uh, brings it home to you. Like, you're, you're aware you feel like an idiot. But also, that's still some, uh, commission in a lot of circumstances, unless it's just like a pure emotional penalty, which this wasn't. It's mostly like over aggressive defense or like misplay. It's not the kind of dubious percentage choice in terms of effort. Yeah. And so I, I do think that this is in a specific category. And I do think that maybe because there have been so many stupid arguments about trying hard and all this sort of stuff that people discount them. But like, that's what this was. So, yeah. <laughs> and I guess you could argue with that Marner thing. Um, you know, it was caused by trying to not cheat for offense, but I guess maybe be a little greedy for offense. And like, you know, there was a chance to end it and uh, in overtime and the Matthews, Marner, Riley trio went for it. It didn't work out. They were gassed the other way and they got, um, you know, a bad result consequently. But a couple of things there. One, you know... It, Again, that's not a deliberately lazy choice, right? Two, mm. the game ended on the penalty shot. What do you want? What do you want Babcock to do? Bench Marner the next game? Two and two days later? <laughs> that's exactly what people would criticize hey, him for in this case, right? Like, and to be clear, if he does that with Neander, we will criticize him as well. That is, that like that is a disproportionate punishment for the crime. But like as you said, the mm-hmm. you know there's no real way to do that in that particular context and. People brought up, you know, Matthews does lazy defense sometimes, and so do other players. There's another element to this, which is Matthews plays bad defense, and he is certainly lazy sometimes. Matthews is also in the range where he's too good to really do that to. What are you going to do? You're going to bench Matthews and play Alex Kerfoot as your top line center? You know, one, one of the reasons the Leafs have always been able to kind of shunt Nilan to the fourth line is because they've always had a really good third line right winger who can plausibly step up and it doesn't hurt your team that badly in the moment yeah so it, and it's... i hate to say it but like this these would be the same <laughs> i have to say babcock would be getting eaten alive if in a game where the team really needed a goal he wasn't playing austin matthews well, that was game seven as a top six center and, and yeah well i mean he still played him a lot yes but, but uh, like but people were complaining yeah, that but... matthews didn't play enough in game seven matthews was ass that game he was really bad he was really 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 bad that game Right, yeah, he was, and and, and bad and it, it sucked. But... Bad in kind of both forgivable and less forgivable ways. If Babcock benched him, then it would be seen as as awful, right? And if Babcock did this in a playoff series, 
I would also be critical because in a playoff series, it's like, okay, you have to have a really short memory. Nylander gives you the best shot to win, even if he's not at his best, right? But you also have to take a bit of a longer-term approach in the regular season. As important as this game is, I, I don't see a problem with it. Again, it's not a move that I... I'm defending this move more than I would like because I don't think, as I said, mm-hmm. I don't think it's some masterclass move that he absolutely had to make or anything. I just don't think it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, we uh, <laughs> we got mad at some things online this week, if you couldn't tell from like the previous <laughs> 45 minutes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we had some, some things we were going to discuss. Um, several, actually. Look, <laughs> we kind of went away from like the bad takes, and then now I have like two, and I think you have at least one? I have one, but it's a long yeah. one. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you want to go um, first? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with this one. So with a bit of background, and I want to preface this by saying I'm not trying to be belligerent or pick a fight with anyone in particular. Um, if <laughs> and you can tell that like this is possibly a risk. You see, uh, Arvind and I wrote an article quite a while back about the... Micro stats, I suppose, the specialty stats that a company called SportLogic was providing, and they provided them to Sportsnet articles. And what we basically said was, while this is interesting, potentially, we don't know all the stuff that we need to know that forms the base of these stats. So when we have something like inner slot shots, um, that sounds good. That sounds like something that you would want, but... We don't know how it correlates to winning. We don't have the evidentiary basis. We don't know how the term is defined. We basically said the result is is that all you can do is kind of say, oh, that's interesting, and then move on to something else. Uh, Andrew Berkshire, who writes these articles, uh, took exception and said we should have consulted him beforehand. Um, he, he got very mad at me on the internet he did not get mad at um, me at all he like i don't even think he, know, he knew that both of us wrote it i think he wrote, thought it was just you which i was fine with because i just completely escaped this case <laughs> yeah i did uh anyway i i will say we were not trying to be unnecessarily provocative i also stand by what we wrote though no i i 100 stand by i think if, if anything <laughs> we went the other we tried very hard to be fair and very hard to you know say look we're not saying these are bad we're saying we don't know enough about these right we were we were i think and, if know, anything clear, we gave them too much credit <laughs> well and to be clear you know they're uh, a private company and this is proprietary data to some extent they're trying to protect their investment which they're selling um they don't want to give everything away but the result is, is that makes it harder for us to verify so uh, jump back to November 2nd, 2019, i.e. yesterday, and Mr. Berkshire has a recent piece saying, Oilers' Ethan Bear, early favorite for Calder Trophy after strong start. So Ethan Bear is a defenseman for the Edmonton Oilers, and he has been having a good start. Uh, I think that's quite fair to say. And so there is a chart here that, uh, I mean... <laughs> It's a war crime. I'm trying to focus my criticisms and not talk about uh, you know, graphic it, design here. It's really bad. It's really bad. It's uh, it's a. I mean, it, it's an impressive looking chart in that it's not something that you can just do in Excel, which is I think the point. 
because you like it has a photo behind it and you need to do all this sort of stuff but uh it's a little hard to read but anyway it measures inner slot shots shots shot attempts and slot passes relative to the team at five on five for rookies that's a big mouthful but it's basically saying which of these players are driving these things some of which are things that i recognize uh some of which are not and who seems to be driving play there so so far okay uh some of those ideas are kind of contained in one another like inner slot shots shot attempts and uh shots general should all have a lot of crossover they're all highly correlated Um, you yeah and then slot passes is interesting i think that that's actually like an interesting idea i don't know how the slot is defined i don't know what counts as a slot pass it's actually unclear um, if it means a pass leading to a shot in the slot or a pass that originates and ends in the slot or a pass that just originates in the slot like it when you actually think about the definition it's not immediately clear what it is and maybe it's specified i didn't see it in that article but i yeah i did and you know i'm not saying again i'm not saying that definition doesn't exist or that it's necessarily invalid i'm saying we don't know and so it's very hard for us to infer a lot from this but let's go along for the time being and say okay Maybe that's something. What isn't mentioned in the piece, and I gotta tell you, I found this a trifle odd, is which forwards Ethan Bear is spending the most time with on Edmonton. There are two guys you've probably heard of named Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. I was gonna think. I and, I thought well, I thought you were gonna going to with uh, James Neal and Drake Kajula. <laughs> is Drake Kajula still on that team? I don't think he is anymore. Drake, um, James Neal and Dujar Kyra. Yeah, like, Drake Kajula could have just, like, run away to Brazil or something, and I wouldn't notice. Um, But, anyway, yeah, those two guys, who I think we would agree are pretty okay players, I suspect they have a lot more to do specifically with anything called an inner slot shot or a slot pass than a defenseman does. I just happen to believe that. And while that doesn't necessarily invalidate what Ethan Bear is doing and how legitimate it is, Uh, I'm sure he's doing quite well. I think he is actually having a good year. But it seems to me like a pretty substantial oversight or omission. Not to mention that that may be a huge factor. And a related thing is that, as we've often remarked on, the Edmonton Oilers don't have a ton of depth. And so if you're spending a lot of time with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, and the other defensemen are spending less time with those two players your on-ice differentials relative to your teammates are probably going to look pretty good for you, even if you're not doing that much, because you're getting to play with the superstar line, and by and large, the other players are playing more times with guys who are kind of anonymous and we just made fun of. I don't think, in all seriousness, Ethan Bear is coming within like 100 yards of the Calder. Um, no, and maybe. I mean, I also did, but I doubt it. I did the math on this. He spent about forty percent of his five v five time with with the with McDavid slash Drysaddle. So it's a pretty. Mm. Sign- I mean, if you think about it, like if you split that time, um, on on average, right? Like that, that's probably around what you would expect for kind of a second pairing defender to play with their their top line. But it, it makes a difference, and I think not mentioning that, as you said, it's a very large omission not to mention like the that bar graph you mentioned 
has like three things on or four things on them, three of which are, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, three of which are essentially refinements of each other. So they're all like incredibly correlated. It, it just comes off as like, well, why do we care about all of these, especially in a 15 game sample? Why, why are we segmenting and binning data to this degree where we're looking at inner slot shots as opposed to like, why aren't we, if you have all the location data and presumably this is not borked location data, like the um, NHLs, because otherwise that would render this entire analysis kind of moot. But if you have that, why, why aren't you just reporting shot attempts and XG? That would just make mm-hmm. infinitely more sense. Yeah. So, I, and I should say in fairness, all those things that are described in this graph appear to be offensive zone statistics and very specifically the kind of offensive zone statistics that you would think forwards would have a greater impact on. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere in the article, there is some stuff about Bear having uh, good defensive... Uh, let me get the exact stat. Yeah. Completed defensive zone passes per minute played. Uh, and he's apparently quite positive in in that item. You know, I, again, I think I know what that probably is. That seems intuitive, but I don't know for sure. Um... But, like, when you put this together, I'm a bit like, this is the kind of thing that bothers me about these kind of statistics. And, again, it's not that they're not valuable. And, again, I'm not saying that I think the author is trying to deceive people or anything like that. It's just when you have what seems to be kind of an incomplete argument here, and when you have some metrics that are not perfectly well-defined or that we don't understand the value of completely, it's very hard to infer too much from them that is kind of reliable. Like, you just, you don't know if you're on a sound basis here, and I have to admit, when the conclusion seems pretty iffy to me, like, I think Quinn Hughes, who was mentioned in the article, to be fair, and is mentioned positively, I think in the early going, Quinn Hughes is a more credible candidate for the Calder. I just find myself thinking... This is the kind of stuff about analytics that worries me a little bit. It's like when you get charts and you get what appears to be quite specific knowledge that no one else has and no one else can test, uh, there just isn't the kind of validation that we would hope for. You just, you can't put much confidence in this argument. I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, Although I think that not mentioning the forwards is an oversight that yes. is actually a problem with the argument, but... I don't think that we can know how much weight to put on this or whether we can safely put a lot or a little or any. And so that's the kind of stuff that I have an issue with with this graph. Yes. And and to be clear, like, none of this is a shot at Ethan Bear, who I don't think either of us really know enough about to really say anything about with, you know, extreme certainty by by the numbers. By the numbers that I've... Yeah. It looks like he's had (laughs) legitimately a a good, Mm -hmm. a good year. Um, or at least at the very least a solid year, right? It's just the argument made here is is spurious and incomplete. And also like a lot of the components of that argument are not well-defined. Like even the completed defensive zone passes, it's like, okay, cool, that that's neat. That's neat to know. And I think they also mentioned completed zone passes that, that lead to a breakout. It's like, cool, that's good. What What exactly does that mean? for him right like mm-hmm. how how does that contextualized with all the other factors that 
go into kind of his his overall play like what what's his usage like what's he um what are his teammates like as you mentioned with the mcdavid dry thing it, it just it felt incomplete and i i mean i think you could actually have a similar thing and just without the conceit of the calder trophy thing just make it hey ethan bear has done a pretty good job on edmonton second pairing and is a is a reason why they've had a good start or part of the reason why they've had a good start okay you know yeah, that, that's fine. It, you you, you, know. you could make the argument that okay, you know what Edmonton they have these elite guys. They just need competence everywhere else, and Bear has been competent when they needed him to be. I think that's a sound argument, and I think actually the same sort of ideas that are presented in in the the piece that we're talking about, if presented for that conclusion, would would be a lot more viable. Mm-hmm. It it's just you know it it feels. I don't know. I, I I have to say that like it just. <laughs> I'm clearly tripping over my words here because again I'm not trying to be a dick or sort of fight here, and I am conscious that you know I have inadvertently pissed off Mr. Berkshire in the past. I'm just saying I don't think that this argument is one that I can trust very well, and I think that when you get these gaudy charts and you get placement on Sportsnet and you have this being disseminated to a wider arguments when we don't know how much confidence we can put in it statistically I think that that runs a risk of clouding the field of analytics of messing with the popular understanding there and again I don't know if maybe the numbers here do support the conclusions and it's just not within my capacity to understand because I don't have access to the data but I do think that that is a problem that you can't put a lot of confidence in these sort of things. Yep, that makes sense. Um, I interrupted you a lot there. Do you want to go with your second one now? Or? <laughs> My second one is going to be really short, but it might lead into you. Uh, it might lead into yours if <laughs> about power plays. Right. But, uh, uh, so this is uh, Sid Sixero of Tim and Sid. He had a tweet saying, Ovechkin is standing in the same spot on every power play. And... He has some hand claps interspersed, and I'm reading this as, gee, everyone, look, he's right there the whole time. How has no one successfully done anything about it? Uh, I apologize if that's an unfair reading of Mr. Sixero's comments, but I don't think it is. And I have to say that it's the kind of thing that annoys me. Like, of course everyone knows where Ovechkin's standing, <laughs> including every NHL coach, including pretty much anyone who's been game adjacent in the last decade. You know, the problem isn't that you don't know what's coming. The problem is you can't stop it because he has maybe the best one-timer of all time. And he plays way out on his left wing. And so you have a choice. You can sell out a defenseman almost entirely to covering him, which is in and of itself hard to do one-on-one because he's still big as hell and he's hard to stop. And in that case, you're conceding the other half of the ice where Kuznetsov, Oshie, Backstrom, and Carlson are all waiting to gut you four on three. I got maybe a little sassy about this one just because it feels like the implied premise is why doesn't anyone do about this? This is so obvious. If the conclusion is just that everyone in the whole league is missing something really obvious, you should really try before coming to that conclusion. That should be something that you get to only with great reluctance. And 
maybe this is just a general problem that I have, but I get kind of annoyed when people just as jump to, hey, maybe everyone's just being stupid. You know, I don't like that line of argument. And I think that it's kind of a plague on hockey Twitter in general. I think for the record, it's also been a big thing in the analytics community when they were trying to sort of cut their way in and make a lot of revolutionary changes. And sometimes they were right about the league not uh, recognizing trends or making changes that they should have made. But like, I really think that we should sort of assume not all NHL coaches are daft. And if the, Ovechkin is still scoring, despite everyone knowing where he is, the answer is probably just that it's really, really hard to do anything about it because he's the greatest goal scorer of all time. So that's my little rant on that one. Yeah, it, it reminds me of when people who like don't watch basketball are like, why didn't he just dunk it? It's like, well, yeah. Have you considered just dunking it? Yeah, it's like, well, you know, it's hard to get into that position, you know. Um, yeah, and yeah, with, with Ovechkin on the power play, as you said, you could you can basically put a guy on, on top of him and then the rest of the Caps, who are all very talented, go four on three. And then also, like, Ovechkin is not beholden to stand there if you literally just sell a guy for him. He's going to move around. And actually, that's one thing he, he does. He'll do a thing where he, like, briefly, like, leaves the zone then comes back at a different angle. Your guy can't follow him out there. Or they can, but... That, that's that'd be stupid All right yeah because then he'll zoom in past you and then he's wide open yeah so i mean cutting to the net so look I, I i'm not averse to the idea that there are better ways to defend that power play maybe there are but when you have a guy who can just cleanly beat goaltenders from the top of the circle that's just a very very hard thing to defend mm-hmm. right um it, it, it just is it, it, it breaks a lot of the rules of hockey, which is that, you know, danger is proximate to distance, right? When you can be that dangerous from that far away, it's a problem. Now, this actually yeah. ties into our, what I'm going to rant about, um, <laughs> which is that Alex Ovechkin is dangerous on the power play, but an Alex Ovechkin shot from 35 feet out is not a 50% shot at being a goal. And that probably seems like a weird thing to rant about, like who is saying that? Well, the answer is money puck. So if you don't know, Money Puck is a, is a, is a stats website that um, is very, very useful. And again, I want to be very clear and careful here to make sure that nothing gets misunderstood. Money Puck and the people slash person behind it, they do great work. They are invaluable to the community. I'm very, very grateful to the stuff that they do. But I think I'm going to criticize an, an aspect of, of what they did and what they tweeted uh, with respect to their stats uh, with, uh, for the Leafs-Washington game. And hopefully this doesn't take away from the fact that I do think that they do do a great job. And again, they're very important. I want to be, make that very clear. They do a very good job. This is an isolated uh, event that I think can be instructive and annoyed me for, for a couple reasons. So as you may remember, even though it felt, feels like three years ago, um, the Washington game, we, the Leafs <laughs> lost 4-3 in OT, I believe. And they lost an OT on a power play goal, a four on three power play goal by Ovechkin and they took a couple penalties during this overtime so a lot of it was spent with the Capitals on the power play now Money Puck among its many um, excellent services one of the things it does is it provides live XG updates expected goal updates for uh, any given game now at the end of regulation the Leafs and Capitals uh, in terms of XG were in all situations the Leafs had about 2.9 and the Capitals had 2.3 right just pretty standard for a game by the end of the game 
Money Puck reported that in basically five, four or five minutes of overtime, the Capitals scored an additional four expected goals. They got chances that are worth four expected goals. Now, to put this in context, an average team will get like two to two and a half uh expect let's say let's two and a half expected goals in a 60 minute game now you may be thinking mm-hmm. oh i mean that seems high but not unreasonable for a, a, a lot of power plays even for power plays i think the leafs had like, the best power play in terms of expected goals per 60 last year and it was in the range of like 11 to 12 goals per 60 right mm-hmm. the capitals got four in five minutes which would translate to, let me do my math here, 12 times 4. 36. 12 times 4 is not 36. It's 48, what am I saying? <laughs> well, you know, you don't love me for my math prowess, okay? <laughs> for, 48 expected goals per hour. It is an absurd amount, right? So much so that you're like, how did that even happen? So anyways, um, Money Puck tweets after the game, you know, something to the effect of, you know, it's hard for the Leafs to win when they gave up you know, this many expected goals on the power play, like four expected goals on the power play. And this is the first thing I have a problem with. If you see something like this and you know anything about hockey stats, your first question is, is that right? Four expected goals in five minutes is insane. I'm not sure I've ever seen that many expected goals in that short a time span, right? Like a lot of the shots we think are good, really, really good shots are like, 35% shots, right? It's hard to score in the NHL. It's really hard. A bad goalie in the NHL is one who saves 90% of the shots they face. Even on the power play, mm-hmm. a bad goalie is someone who saves 80% of the shots they face. So it immediately, some alarm bells should ring because if, if um, a team gets like four expected goals in a sequence and the goalie saves all but one of them, obviously... Like, literally everyone should be talking about, oh my god, what a heroic performance from this goalie. What a ridiculous set of saves. This is unbelievable. This is the best goaltending display I've seen in my life. People weren't saying that about Frederick Anderson in that overtime. He played well, but no one was like, oh wow, Anderson is just stoning the caps, you know, saving goal after goal after goal. He made good saves. He didn't save three and a half goals above expectation. Right? Yeah, it's basically like, there's just no what no way anyone shoots as well, including Ovechkin, including someone who I've just talked about, in terms of, like his ability. Right. It's like if there's a goalie in the net who is in the NHL and they're alive, there should not be such thing as a fifty percent shot on them. Well, like, I mean, that and, really shouldn't exist. And there might be, but it's like <laughs> those are rebounds off goal mouth scrambles, right? So my first big point is is this. When you do any sort of stats or any sort of analysis, you need to have a BS detector. You need to have the ability to look at results, to look at the process that you are modeling and be like, that does not seem right. That's the most valuable skill in stats and in modeling. It's the ability to have a BS detector. And so I I tell students this all the time when when I teach or when I TA, having a BS detector for the answers that you give is important, right? If you're working on a problem and Something suggests, oh, this probability should be greater than one. That's obviously wrong. That should sound alarm bells in your head of, wait, that doesn't seem right. Similarly, if you see this Mm -hmm. and you know anything about hockey sets, you should be like, okay, that that seems weird. 
I need I should look into that further, especially if it's, you know, like your website, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when you look at this closer, it looks weirder and weirder and more obviously and more obviously incorrect to me, because you look at the shot plot of where these chances were taken and a bunch of them were taken at the Ovechkin spot, the top of the left circle. Right now, it's possible, it's very, very unlikely, but it's possible to have a bunch, a huge amount of expected goals in a short period of time based on goal mail scrambles, where there's like four or five shots within two to three seconds. They're all really close in, they're off rebounds, goaltenders might be out of position, it's really close to the net. That was not the case here. It was Ovechkin bomb after Ovechkin bomb. And when you look at the stats for this, Money Puck is giving those shots a 46% chance of going in, a 45% chance of going in, a 61% chance of going in, right? Like, it just a 34% chance of going in. These are all from the from the overtime. And it, it's just, that mm. is way, way, way too high for that distance. I've never seen something from that distance be recorded at, at that, uh, sorry, as that high a probability of becoming a goal. It just doesn't make any physical sense, right? Like, it's worth, yeah, and I, I think, you know, people might intuitively think, okay, but it's Ovechkin. Okay, he's from, you know, the most dangerous guy. But first off, before we went on, we looked at, like, what... Shooter, shooter quality is not incorporated in the model anyways, right? Like, the point of expected goals models is to mm -hmm. present an average, not how much is that shot worth from, worth from Ovechkin. It's how much is that shot worth in general. So it's a bad argument in general, but, you know, go ahead. I, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, I'm just going to say, even if you look at, like, what does Ovechkin shoot on the power play. And again, this is Alex fucking Ovechkin we're talking about here. It's nowhere near he's scoring on 50% of his shots or shot attempts. Or even 40%. Like, it's, it's not even... Yeah, it's, it's like it's not close. And so as good as he is, and he is incredible, even he can't do that. If you're going to a generalized model, it should definitely be lower than what Alex Ovechkin is doing because as we just said, he's the best. So it's like, I think that the big takeaway is just, you do need kind of a bullshit detector. You do need an instinct to say, hey, this isn't right. I, I think that that's a, a very good point. And it's just getting a kind of refined one. And it's not just sort of like reflexive, oh, I don't trust anything. I don't trust these numbers. That's not the same thing. It's just the ability to engage with it and say, Something funny is going on here. Right. And this wouldn't be a problem uh, if probably the most important if, thing. if the site was just kind of bugged there. You know what? That happens. It's a very hard thing to make a live updating site. It's certainly not something that's in my skill set, so I wouldn't criticize that heavily. But on multiple occasions, Money Puck tweeted about the results from this as if there was no issue with them, as if, like, yeah, I'm taking this at face value. And that doesn't make sense. You, there is no reason to take this at face value. For example, if you look at Evolving Hockey, um, they're plot of the same thing. They suggest that um, Washington got one expected goal in that power play, which makes sense, or in overtime, which makes sense to me. That I can buy because they took like mm -hmm. eight, you know, six, seven, eight shots. Yeah, about 12 and a half, 13% on average. I can buy that. That makes sense. That's in line mm -hmm. with the results that we typically see. Four expected goals in a five minute stretch where a lot of those shots were from the circles, it just does not pass the sniff test. Like the historical success rate of those shots, even by Ovechkin. You know, as we said, we alluded to, we looked up how much Ovechkin shoots. Over the past three years, it's 15%. Even if you say, mm -hmm. you know, half of Ovechkin's shots, he misses, right? So, you know, bump that up to 30% because that we're not, so we don't want to just include shots on goal. We're going to include all shots. Well, 
then 30% still doesn't get you to what Money Puck is reporting. Yeah, like, it's just, it doesn't add up, is, is the bottom line. And that's fine, things happen, but you've got to try and keep an eye out for when those things don't add up. I think, you know, that's a really good point. Yes, and, and it frustrates me because this is the most, as I said, it's one of the most important skills you can have in modeling. It's one of the most important skills you can have in stats because when you're doing stats, when you're doing research, when you're doing any sort of, um, you know, complicated, complicated modeling, you don't know necessarily what the answer is going to be a priori, but you should have some guess. You need to have some understanding of the physical process that you're, that you're modeling. And didn't, what this reminds me of is actually, remember when 538 was looking at um, what markets the NHL should expand to, and they ended up suggesting Sudbury Thunder Bay? <laughs> and I mean, for those of you yeah. who don't know your Ontario geography, it's what, like a... a <laughs> A very long drive between Sudbury and Thunder Bay. They're not remotely in the same market. 12 hours, yeah. give or take. So the issue there with 538 is they, they didn't have the basic knowledge of, you know, what are we actually measuring here? Is this, is what is the output that we have something that is reasonable, right? And if you don't know about where Sudbury and Thunder Bay are, you know, if you're saying, oh yeah, there are two cities in Ontario. Okay, yeah, that seems fine. Right. If someone suggested two cities in the same province of France, I'd be like, OK, yeah, sure. Whatever. I, I don't know French geography. Right. But mm -hmm. if you're writing about it, if you're tweeting about it, and if you're putting this into the public, you need to have that knowledge. And similarly, like Money Puck, they work with this stuff all the time. They, they've, built, they've built a very, very good site. You would expect them to know about kind of what is plausible and what is not. And this just isn't plausible. And the kind of mm -hmm. discussion of it as if it was, is very, very frustrating to me. Because it, it just doesn't make yeah. sense. It's, it's something I would expect out of Tim and Sid. It's not something I would expect out of <laughs> the person who made one of the best sites to use for hockey stats. Yeah, and it is notable because this is kind of in the context of there's always a market for let's dunk on the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's fine. That's how it is. But when you're doing it with what's supposedly an analytical basis, you really got to be careful what you're putting out there. Also, uh, I did double check this. It's actually only 11 hours oh, from Sudbury. Okay, that, that, makes, that so, makes it much better. Actually, it's totally reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Love to drive 11 hours there and back for a hockey game. <laughs> yeah. You take three days yeah. off to go uh, to a hockey game. Yeah. And like... God, how many people even live in Thunder Bay? It's like it's 50,000 or something like that, if that. Anyway, but, um, yeah, just, uh, you got to have your bullshit detected. Oh, no, you know what? See, I'm running the risk of 538ing myself because they have 107,000 people now. Mm. But, uh, yeah, the point is, is just you got to try and keep an eye on those overarching facts or when you output something. And that's just a familiarity thing. That's a sort of field competency thing that you just get by dealing with it day in day out and it's okay everybody makes mistakes but like when you are a resource like money puck is and you tweet about it yeah that is kind of glaring mm -hmm. all right um it seems like the podcast where we get angry tend to be the ones that go longer so this was a bit of a longer <laughs> one than, than usual but um i think that's pretty much everything we wanted to touch on is that correct Wildman? yep all right yeah i got nothing else awesome 
So thank you all for listening. Um, you can catch all of mine and Fuleman stuff at PetroPanPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.